What are the obstacles facing U.S. GIs who refuse to serve in wars generally considered illegal under international law? Are there similarities and differences between the Vietnam-era war resistors and their counterparts today? And how can activists today provide protection from those who make the conscientious choice not to follow orders to participate in unlawful wars, such as those in Iraq or Afghanistan? In advance of Let Them Stay Week in Canada, we will hear perspectives from the U.S. Army deserter and book author Joshua Key, Vietnam-era war resistor Howard Davidson, and war resistor support campaign organizer Michelle Robidoux on the past, present, and future of war resistance activism in Canada. On today's program, Refusing to Fight, Canadians Supporting U.S. War Deserters. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 10th, 2014. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Born of a failed 1980 raid to rescue American hostages in Iran, in which eight U.S. service members died, U.S. Special Operations Command was established in 1987. Made up of units from all the service branches, SOCOM is tasked with carrying out Washington's most specialized and secret missions, including assassinations, counter-terrorist raids, special reconnaissance, unconventional warfare, psychological operations, foreign troop training, and weapons of mass destruction counter-proliferation operations. Last year, Admiral McRaven, who previously headed the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, a clandestine subcommand that specializes in tracking and killing suspected terrorists, touted his vision for special ops globalization. In a statement to the House Armed Services Committee, he said, quote, U.S. SOCOM is enhancing its global network of SOF to support our interagency and international partners in order to gain expanded situational awareness of emerging threats and opportunities. The network enables small, persistent presence in critical locations and facilitates engagement where necessary or appropriate." Unquote. In translation, this means that SOCOM is weaving a complex web of alliances with government agencies at home and militaries abroad to ensure that it's at the center of every conceivable global hotspot and power center. That's from the article, U.S. Special Operations Command, SOCOM, America's Black Ops Blackout, Unraveling the Secrets of the Military's Secret Military, by Nick Terse, post-January 8th, originally appearing at Tom Dispatch. The Stated Reasons for Smart Metering and Grid Technology 
to save energy and thus aid the environment, to increase power reliability, and to give you more control of energy use in your own home. It is now easily demonstrated that all three of these claims are patently false, as if all of this is not enough. Smart meters, in combination of smart appliances also chronicling transmitting low-level microwave radiation, are functionally designed to collect swaths of in-home private data on everyone. And incredulously, even former CIA Director David Petraeus boasted in Wired March 2012 that government will be routinely spying on through their smart appliances. And not only would every detail of your life be tracked, but your access to electricity would be totally controlled. Your appliances or entire home could be shut down at any time, without notice, by any utility or government agency, or as another former CIA director James Wolseley stated, quote, a hacker on a cell phone in China. That is from the article... Power Takeover, Are Smart Meters Part of the Largest Corporate Scam in History? by Josh Del Sol, published January 8th, originally appearing at TakeBackYourPower.net. Obsessed with the Iran threat, which leads to its warmongering in Syria, Saudi Arabia is acting like a bull in a china shop, wreaking regional habit, havoc in an already Arab fragile political environment and creating what George Joffe of Cambridge University's Center of International Studies on last December 30th called the Second Arab Cold War, the first being the Saudi-led Cold War with Pan-Arab Egypt of Gamal Abdul Nasser since the 1960s. It's going it alone in the Syrian conflict has cornered Saudi Arabia into a self-inflicted foreign policy no-win deadlock to be at odds with three superpowers, including its strategic U.S. ally, as well as Russia and China, in addition to regional heavyweights in Iran, Iraq, Egypt, and Algeria, all who advocate a political settlement of the conflict. Its warmongering in Syria is portraying the kingdom in public opinion as the regional mastermind of violence and instability, vindicating American accusations fueled by Israeli incitement in the aftermath of the terror attacks in U.S. on September 11, 2001, that the Saudi sectarian ideology is an incubator nurturing violence and terror despite the kingdom's long war against its own Islamist terrorists. The sectarian Ideology is creating a sectarian clash across the Middle East between two theocracies, the Shiite theocracy of Iran and the Sunni theocracy of Saudi Arabia, thus blurring the real dividing line of the regional battle between the U.S.-protected Israeli occupation of Arab lands in Palestine, Syria, and Lebanon, and the self-proclaimed Iran-Syria axis of resistance. The survival of a secular Syria will be the first regional step towards the containment of this destructive sectarian clash. That comes from the article, The Saudi Bull in Arab China Shop, The Saudi-Israeli Marriage of Convenience Against Syria and Iran, by Nicola Nasser, posted January 8th. Prime Minister Stephen Harper recently spoke to the annual Toronto Gala of the Jewish National Fund, which has a long history of dispossessing Palestinians and discriminating against non-Jews. Echoing the words of Theodore Herzl, a founder of political Zionism, Harper told the 4,000 attendees that Israel is a, quote, light of freedom and democracy in what is otherwise a region of darkness, unquote. 
While the Harper government's pro-Israel comments are particularly extreme, they are far from unique in Canadian history. Early Canadian support for Zionism was based on the more literal teachings of the Bible that flowed out of the Protestant Reformation. They were also tied to this country's status as a dominion of the British Empire, which in the latter half of the 19th century began to see Zionism as a potential vehicle to strengthen its geostrategic position in the region. That comes from the article, The Long History of Zionism in Canada, by Eve Engler, posted January 9th, originally published at eveengler.com. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Joshua Key is one of the world's most high-profile U.S. war deserters. He came to Canada in 2005 after serving in Iraq for about eight months. He co-wrote with prominent author Lawrence Hill a memoir of his experiences in the book The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war in Iraq. He now resides in Winnipeg. He is currently married to a Canadian and has fathered three children with her. I spoke to him recently in advance of his trip to Toronto, where he will be participating in public talks on the war resistor's cause. We discussed his experiences while in Canada as a U.S. GI resistor. I think a lot of people have come to the view that you know, Canada is this friendly neighbor to the north and that they're very accommodating and uh, you know, there's the whole legacy with the Vietnam War accepting you know, Canada as a refuge from militarism and so on. Mm-hmm. Would you care to... Uh, maybe expose, uh, based on your own experiences, some of the, the myths and the realities with regard to how uh, you were re- you, you, war resistors like yourself have been uh, received in Canada. Maybe your own experiences since coming I would, here. I would have to say that uh, it's damn sure not the, the late 60s and early 70s anymore, especially as far as policies that are concerned with us being in the country. It's not, uh, I mean, I, I guess you have to put it blunt. It hasn't been a welcoming whatsoever at all. As of this year, it'll be pretty well eight years since I've been allowed to work in the country. It'll be uh, pretty well eight years since I've had any form of health care. I mean, eight years since you've been disallowed from working in the yes. country. Yes, and then also for from having health care. You know, I haven't had health care either. Um, it's... Um, like, even even to put it in the perspective of for the past five years, I, I have been married to a Canadian. You know, she's from Winnipeg. Even with even that, it still has not mattered nothing to the government. I mean, we've had a sponsorship case in for four years on paper, and even with that, you know, I, I look at the websites, you know, Canadian and immigration uh, citizenship websites and such, and it says that people will get an answer on that sponsorship in six months. It's been four years and we haven't received one answer. You know, I know that there's many different stages to a sponsorship, and I know that when you get to the first stage of it, then you're allowed to work like everyone else and you're allowed to have health care like everyone else. With my case and most of the soldiers like me in the country that are married to Canadians, they go to the third step first, which means are you criminal admissible in the country? Which 
my lawyer says and everyone else that's against the law. They're not allowed to do that. There's a, a sequence of steps that they're supposed to take. Yes. You and know they've that. shot right up to this third step exactly. of criminal admissibility. And, and even in that, it has put all of us in the country in, in very much limbo. I mean, when you have from 10 years to 9 and all the way down to some soldiers, it's been a... Uh, you don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, you know, we all try to live that uh, law will be mm-hmm. followed. You know, Geneva Conventions and international law will be will be taken for what it is. And ever since I've been here, that's not been the case. Mm-hmm. It has been uh, a complete, in many ways, from the allegations in my book to everything that has happened since I've been in the country, it's been a complete, they have ignored the treaties of which themselves have signed, because otherwise then I'd be allowed to stay in this country without even a question. The only reason that they don't is because of where I come from is, is across the border. I don't know why people have asked. I don't know if it's they don't want to piss off the United States or, they, or, or what, it, what it is particularly that they don't want to do. But as far as laws are concerned, this should have been dealt with eight years ago. And instead, we're all, of course, uh, still here with with nothing. I wanted to raise another point. You wrote the book uh, about two years after you arrived in Canada. You co-wrote with Lawrence Hill the book, uh, uh, The Deserter's Tale. Yes. And uh, it's uh, sold pretty well in in much of the, well, I I believe Australia, and it's been a a bestseller other places as well. Very good in Europe, yes. And so, are you not drawing any income from those book sales? Well, like I tell people, and I think anyone that's ever wrote a book would, unless you sell a million copies, you ain't making no money. And, and, and I haven't sold a million copies. I mean, it's a, uh, even with the first sale, first sale in as many countries as it is, I sort of laugh now because whenever I was doing the book, um, it's... The only markets they care about is the United States market. And, and, and anyone can tell from the nature of the book, it didn't sell that well in the United States. And that's a given. I knew that. Um, Lawrence Hill, who who's a, a great friend and, and a great writer, my goodness, and everything, but he said, it'll sell more in 20 years than what you're going to sell now. Because then it'll get to a point where it is history. Right now, it's too relevant. You know, it's a slap in the face in some sense to uh, to everything. But it's like you had said previously on, on your introduction. It, it's not an isolated case is what some people would have said when the book came out and when I first came to Canada. It's happening all over the place. I mean, there's reports from Bradley Manning to uh, Kevin Benderman, all, all sorts of other people that have put this out. And I would say right now, as given what they're considering the history of the Iraq war will be, is going to be nothing but very much crimes against humanity, war crimes, and everything else that was taking place on our on our part that we did. I mean, you've had soldiers that have been tried for uh, raping Iraqi women, to setting their bodies on fire, to shooting them, to to everything. But uh, in a big sense, when George W. Bush was president, they had signed a, uh, that a soldier that is in Iraq cannot be held responsible for the things they commit while they're on the ground in Iraq, which makes no sense. It pretty well trumps everything that's been done in the past and everything that ever would Geneva Conventions and all. But uh, 
it is some sense now, which uh, my goodness is uh, pretty well 11 years later, that uh, people are being held responsible for their actions and things is going to be. Now, you in particular, having written this book, Mm -hmm. do you feel uh, that your... Is there anything distinguishing you from other war resistors who maybe are maybe less outspoken? Yeah, the book. The book, and I have did so many interviews around the world, Canada, the United States. I've been in, uh, you know, I, I, of course, have. I wrote my book with Lawrence Hill. I've been in two other books. I have uh, been in documentaries, you know, the, the big movie Stop Loss. You know, I was one of the expert deserters that they talked to on the phone for that movie. Um, it's a uh, sort of laugh at the expert for desertion is quite funny, but uh, it's um, you have it, to take it with a sense of humor. Exactly, and, and it has it. Uh, it's labeled me to the point of you know I had a lawyer check into it years ago. If I was sent back to the United States or I went back voluntarily, what would they do? You know, what would be the realm of prison sentence that I would get? Because, you know, we all know or who anyone who's kept watch on it knows that the soldiers that have been sent back to the United States have got anywhere from, I think, 10 months in prison to 16 months, and I think uh, in around that. But also, on, on, a, on a big level, the first one that was actually a veteran was Kim Rivera, who was sent back and who received 10 years and who was pregnant. My goodness, she had her child while in custody in prison. But it's... Um, it was 10 months, right? 10 months, yes. Uh, but the people that... What the United States government, the military sees, is if you're a veteran, you're worse than the worst. Because then you went and fought, you came to another country, and then now you've talked about it. Now, you wrote a book about it. The lawyer who I had checked, he said, and this was his specific words, don't you ever come back to the United States. And I said, well, what did they say? What was there, you know, around? And he goes, well, you you wrote a book. So they're going to say it'll be around 20 years, uh, 20 years in prison for not wanting to go back and kill people. I mean, that's just the that's the way. There ain't no either easier way to break it down. I didn't want to go back, and I didn't want to kill anyone. Uh, I didn't see no reason to because basically then people was just like us. They were just like me back in Oklahoma uh, doing everything they possibly can to survive and take care of their families. Um, I don't see how any one of us would deserve a day in prison. It's a completely unfathomable 20 years or even around that mark. But it also shows the things that you do reflects what would happen if we're sent back. When I first came to Canada, my lawyer had said, you know, which is a little naive thinking now, but, you know, the interviews and stuff that you do is not going to affect if you're sent back to the United States. I don't think that even at that time he realized the scope of what hundreds and hundreds of interviews, newspapers, magazines, Movies, documentaries, I mean, you know, things that, in a sense, would very much hurt the United States military standing throughout the world. And I'm sure it has in many different given circumstances. Um, We all know after seeing Bradley Manning of what they did to him 35 years in prison. Um, Even myself, I didn't leak documents because I didn't have, I wasn't top secret. I didn't know any of that. But I knew what I had seen there.
and also it's still you know this whistleblower status that we all could be considered of I'm not wanting to find out how many years I'm going to get in prison and I don't think a lot of us here would want to find out how many years we'd get I know that if you know things that are looked upon I know Jeremy Hensman myself and a few others would probably be their uh, most wanted for what we did yeah. Now, let's maybe talk a little bit more about your experiences here in Canada. Um, I, one thing that maybe is a, a little less known is that you are suffering from a, a chronic problem with your back. Yes, I And have. that compromises your ability to... Uh, Do everything for the most part. I, I have uh, two herniated discs in my lower back. You know, my doctor says that uh, I need to have surgery as soon as possible. You know, the next thing that could happen is you probably could go paralyzed if the things, you know, if things move in the wrong way, or you could uh, lose all um, bodily functions. Could go. And, I mean, it's quite scary when I think of that because I can't go to the hospital like uh, Canadians can. You know, in the way I sort of look at so the it, land of free healthcare. You not know, so free for no. resistors. And in a sense, I look at it as a... I don't think... What is the expense? Can you say about approximately how much the surgery would cost if you paid out of pocket? Tens of thousands of dollars. Tens I mean, presumably, uh, from what I've been told, it would be up to around $100,000, which that's just completely... I, there's no way... There's no way to even... I could even touch the surface of that. Um... And it does, it puts a, you know, like my doctor said, the only way that they will do the surgery is if you lose all bodily functions. Or you do go paralyzed. Well, then it's too damn late. You know, like I, like I told my dad, that's too late then. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's a scary, and not even for myself, but for all people that are in the country that have no status and, and don't have health care. I mean, it, it is scary to everyone, and I can only imagine what other people's problems might have. But I know to myself and my wife, it scares the living hell out of us because, you know, one given wrong thing or something could happen, there, there's no um, there's no help. You're not, you can't work. Uh, and you, no. even if you could, you, you're not allowed to exactly. legally earn an income here. Exactly. And uh, no social assistance uh, benefits of any kind. No, no, I, I haven't received... Uh, Social assistance, I haven't received. Now, I don't even go to when they, you know, Christmas time, and you can get a turkey. I won't even go get the turkey. I'm, I, I've said since I've been here, and I stand firm to it, I didn't come somewhere to live off in another country's generosity, is what you might call it. Um, I, I've seen it as uh, me and my family live in dire poverty. I mean, you know, people, the way we live, it, for the most part, is from the graciousness of, of uh, Canadian people. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, uh, it's a very, uh, like I like I tell my wife, my goodness, you can cook anything because that's the way it has to go. You have yeah. to cook everything. You have to be quite uh, resourceful. Yeah. But it's. Uh, the generosity of every of everyday Canadian people, though, has been astounding. Mm. Now, uh, you told me months, like years ago, that uh, your uh, your Canadian-born wife and your Canadian-born children were being denied certain benefits. They were be being denied the child tax. Uh, I guess, benefit that every other Canadian gets that they have Canadian-born children. Uh, we did end up getting it back, but it was years of fighting to get it back. Wow. Uh, you know, we had to get uh, Olivia Chow involved in it. Because NDP MP. Yes. We, I asked her because, of course, I knew Jack Layton and I knew her. 
she got involved with it, and it was a few months later we had that we had it back. But it was astounding the stuff that they said, even when me and my wife was trying to fight to get it. Of, you know, we don't know who your husband is. He could be he could be a millionaire. Well, my wife said, well, if he was a millionaire, do you think that we would be fighting you to have what's entitled to our children to be able to survive? I mean, at that given time, it was nothing. I mean, my how did they excuse it? What was their rationalization? Their rationalization was we can't prove who you are. You know, even though I have a book, even though I have did more stuff than anyone could imagine, they said that I could not prove who I was. And that we could be, you know, I could be a millionaire. And it was, it was quite uh, absurd. I mean, it was, it was stupidity, really. Um, now, you, uh, until very recently, were living in Saskatchewan in a small town. You're yeah. not living there anymore. Can you... Tell us that story. No, we lived in a small community. Actually, the community was uh, 14 people. We had uh, we were in the process of purchasing a house there. We had put uh, every bit of income, that every bit of money that we had, we put back into the home. We had a large organic garden that we actually donated most of our, uh, our over-produce to the food banks. Um, and then it was we lived in the same spot for three and a half years. It was a few months ago the the rural municipality came over with the RCMP officer handed me a letter. It says you have uh, three weeks to vacate our property. They had went underneath us to the people we were purchasing the house for. And let's be honest here, the house was seven hundred dollars, and you know we had put thousands of dollars of worth of work into the home. Uh, they come, handed me a letter, says you have three weeks to vacate the property. We had purchased your house out from underneath you. Uh, I had got a lawyer. We had looked into it. It was a completely illegal on every given basis that we that was. And it was months before that they were harassing us, and I couldn't understand why. So I had went over to their office, and I said, why is it that you guys are picking on us? I said, I'm not understanding why, when there's nothing to be picked on, why am I being harassed here? And I said, is it because of who I am? And uh, the woman that worked at the uh, RM office, she she looked at me, and then she tried to avoid the question. So it was a few seconds later, I said, no, I'm asking, why is it? And she goes, well, you just said it's because of who you are. We don't like your politics, and so we're not going to pass anything or do anything for you in this royal municipality. And at that time, it, it sort of shocked me because I didn't tell people who I was. I didn't want people to know. I didn't want to be based on, on who I was or what I did in my life. It was there. We lived quietly. We lived to ourselves. We had a big garden. We uh, did nothing wrong. But uh, to, to boil down to it, uh, we got they kicked us out of our home. They took everything from us because of no other reason except for who I was. In other words, they discriminated against you based yes. on your political beliefs. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm trying to, uh, you know, I got a lawyer and trying to do things the proper way to get reimbursed for everything that we put inside the home and everything that we did. But it's another given, uh, I just, I, I never thought that that could happen in this given time. You know, it's a sounds like something that might have happened in 1940s Arkansas or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's even what I have said. And you know, I said, you know, if it, I don't understand, you know, if this, is, I even said to the woman after she told me that that they weren't going to pass anything or do anything. I said, this is persecution. She didn't even know what that meant, and I could tell by the expression on her face. And I said, if we were the only black family in town, would you be doing this? 
And she wouldn't respond. And I said, of course you wouldn't. Because then you can see the difference. With me, you can't see the difference. The only thing that you don't like or you don't care about is my politics. When you don't even know my politics. But it was, uh, it, I mean, it hurt my wife and my children bad. I mean, some of my children were pretty well born there. They had been lived there their whole entire lives. And it was quite a uh, quite a shock. But it, it really makes a person, it, it really shows that uh, they're still very much ignorant. Regardless of what way it's put, there's lots of ignorance. And instead of people asking a question, anything that's different to them. And I, I get this back home, you know, a lot from people's uh, death threats and hate mail and everything I get. It's you're questioning what they've believed their whole entire life. And instead of them having an open mind of any sense, like I've always told people, I'm not trying to change your mind, but just look at it from the way I've seen it. You don't care. I don't care if you judge me. You can judge me all you want. But I, I would say it's, you're an ignorant person if you can't understand why I'm, why I'm in Canada. But it's a, that was a, a firm example of people that... Uh, they didn't want to open their minds. They didn't want to look at it from a different point of view. They seen it as, you're different. This is the reason you're different is because you're a deserter. And we want you out of our community. And they did it. I was wondering if there's anything you wanted to say to our listeners in terms of advancing the cause, maybe helping you and your family out a little... Jeremy, as well as myself, we've lived here under poverty. We've lived here as second-rate citizens by any means of the scratch. We're not wanting anything but to be normal, live in peace, let us work, and let us take care of our families. That's it. Don't, don't listen to everything you're being told, especially by the people that are in power that runs this show, because uh, they're just saying what, uh, what, what they perceive the reality of being when it's not reality. Joshua Key, author of The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war in Iraq, a U.S.-Iraq war deserter. Thank you very much for uh, sharing your perspectives with us. And, Thanks uh, very much for having me. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. We're joined now by Howard Davidson. Uh, he is a retired professor of continuing education from the University of Manitoba and a longtime critic of U.S. and Israeli military aggression. He came to Canada in the Vietnam War era as a draft evader. So, uh, Howard Davidson, uh, welcome to our program. Thank you very much, Michael, for having me here. Now, uh, Howard, activists on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border frequently reference uh, Canada's welcoming attitude toward uh, people seeking to avoid service in Vietnam. In what ways is the Harper government's hostility toward Iraq war resistors like Kim Rivera and Joshua Key truly a departure from what your allies endured more than 40 years ago? Well, it's a com actually, it's an excellent and very complex question. Uh, maybe I can divide it into two parts. Um, certainly the experience that uh, the war resistors coming here around the, around the Iraq war, like Joshua and others, uh, have faced a great deal of, uh, of 
public hostility coming out of the uh, government, but not uh, any uh, hostility coming out of the general population. We know that. Uh, and I think we know that I think there was a vote in Parliament a while ago in which which did not count as law, but it certainly expressed even a, a sympathy amongst uh, uh, parliamentarians in Ottawa uh, for um, uh, you know for the war resistors. But the government has been very, very hawkish uh, in a way in which uh, the Trudeau government or the Pearson government even at the time uh, was not. So one major difference is that you're dealing with a kind of overt hostility uh, coming out of the government towards the idea of uh, war resistors versus uh, certainly not an overt hostility that was coming out of the Liberal Party back in the mid-1960s uh, and into the, you know, the early 70s. Um, and that uh, reflected more, I think, uh, because I think we could speculate that there was a bit more sensitivity to public wishes back in the 60s compared to now where we're seeing the government, you know, uh, ditching scientific uh, research uh, funding and this real sort of anti-science, uh, uh, not really caring about public opinion uh, positions, which you're getting today. In, uh, in the late 60s, there was, of course, considerable hostility amongst the population to the Vietnam War. Uh, it was uh, kind of ironic because people thought of Canada as not being in the war, but we know in research since that that was, that was not true. But the perception was it was the Americans' war, Canada wasn't in it, and the general Canadian population was not at all hostile. Uh, amongst the people that I know who came to Canada <clears throat> as war resistors in those days, very few, I think, of those people would uh, cite any kind of hostility towards them as war resistors. They may have been hostile because they were kind of hippies, or for whatever unconventional uh, kind of behavior they were engaged in one way or the other. They may have attracted that kind of hostility, but not for being war resistors. And they did not get that kind of hostility out of the uh, out of elected officials, um, even as far as uh, Trudeau. I think the war resistors in Canada were actually kind of um, uh, the whole resistance was in a sense kind of co-opted uh, as a kind of way to express a certain anti-Americanism, which we all know the Canadians you know, love to express that, but very often don't really act on it in terms of political activity. Um, but the war resistors in Canada was sort of a way for Canadians to sort of thumb their noses up in the United States, so they got this kind of pride out of it. And I don't think the government wanted to interfere mm. so that that's the one sort of side of the of the coin this whole relationship between public opinion and government which i think is really qualitatively different now than it was uh you know in the in the 60s but on the other side of the fence there is really almost no difference at all and that is just on the rules governing people coming into the country uh, the difference was that in the 60s, the vast majority of people who came to Canada were not yet drafted, so they were called draft dodgers. So they were not under military law. They were not 
um, uh, deserters by coming up here. They only violated the uh, Social Security Act or the Selective Service Act in the United States. So we, um, uh, those who came up, uh, hit an immigration system which was based on points exactly the same way as it is today. And if you could not um, uh, qualify under that point system, for example, if you did not have a university education, if you were a recent immigrant and your English wasn't all that great, if you didn't have French and your English was maybe modest, if you were, uh, if you didn't have employment in an area that was highly desirable in Canada, these things are all very familiar to people today. If you didn't qualify along those lines, you couldn't gather enough points to be able to get uh, land and immigration status in Canada. And what that meant was that the uh, anti-Vietnam movement here in Canada, a large part of it worked in various organizations to help uh, war resistors get across the border. And I worked in that movement in, uh, in Edmonton with a group called the Alexander Ross Society. Um, and most of the work we did was trying to get young guys who had come up to Canada uh, without, uh, you know, trying to get landed status. They wanted to sort of know the place and get some sense of what they were maybe getting into. And then we realized it was going to be extremely difficult to get them back across the border so that they could then apply. And in many cases, uh, we scrambled and scrambled to try to get them uh, things like job applications or job uh, invitations so we could um, increase their points at the border. But uh, there were many, many men uh, who, uh, you know, just didn't make it. And in that sense, the government took the same sort of position. There was no exception for uh, war resistors who weren't drafted. It was only later, almost, I think, uh, not until the uh, uh, very late 60s, that we started seeing deserters coming across the border. In that case, as in even the case of war resistors, the government's position was extradition for being a uh, draft dodger, if I could use that term, uh, there was nothing in the extradition treaty between the United States and Canada to extradite somebody for being uh, a war resistor who had not been in the draft. There was, however, a provision for returning people who were uh, um, considered deserters. Mm -hmm. But the government chose not to enforce that. And by the time that started to happen, um, the mood had really shifted in the United States very strongly and we found very few of those people actually came up against any serious trouble. And I'm not aware of anyone who was returned, but there may have been. You have to realize that a huge difference between now and then is that people in the 60s around Vietnam, the figure that was kicked around was 10, 15,000 people had come up. Um, whereas today, you're just not seeing those numbers. Yeah. So there's another... Uh, huge difference, and it affected how government could act when you're dealing with thousands as opposed to dealing with a dozen. Okay. So some differences, some similarities. Um, 
could you maybe would you be willing to to, to leave us like given your uh, uh, experience, uh, not just as you know having come up here in those days, but your uh, um, you know activism since, uh, what kinds of strategies would you be inclined to uh, recommend to activists today uh, who wish to stand in solidarity with these uh, resistors and uh, deserters? Well, I think it's extremely important, and I, and I actually would be critical of myself on the same grounds. Um, we tend to become very uh, issue-focused, and so you'll have a lot of people, myself included, who uh, will work, for example, very much in the Palestinian solidarity movement and do a lot of there, but not spend nearly enough time working on the war resistors movement here. So the first thing is, I think there really needs to be much more um, crossing of uh, issue lines. People have to start to understand that these are all very linked issues. Um, there's no, you know, there are very concrete ways in which the Palestinian struggle is linked to the issues of natural resources here in Canada. Very, very concrete ways. Uh, not just, you know, the, the Israeli government being very interested in certain things that we have here, like water. Um, and there are ways in which it is linked in terms of a wider perspective from the point of view of, you know, the questions of imperialism. So first and foremost, I would say, we have to become less issue-specific. The second thing is, I think there is a great deal of, uh, if I may, a kind of timidity uh, that is sort of crept in. Some people talk about it as almost a kind of paralysis. I don't see people being paralyzed so much as being having become quite timid. So that their willingness to engage in the kind of resistance activity, nonviolent resistance activity, that we have seen from time to time, like around the G20, um, but is uh, is very rare here. And we're getting some of that sense from uh, the indigenous people who are more willing to do uh, sort of, uh, you know, nonviolent acts, civil disobedience uh, against injustice. But we're not seeing much of that today. And so I think... Uh, Timidity is something that really needs to be uh, challenged, and I also think, uh, you know, having a wider perspective would help uh, because it would help groups work together. Howard Davidson is a retired professor of continuing education from the University of Manitoba and currently residing in Toronto and a past uh, a U.S. draft evader uh, from the Vietnam era. Howard Davidson, thank you very much for sharing those thoughts with us. You're entirely welcome. Okay, thanks. And thanks for having me. Okay, thanks a lot. The week from January 12th to January 19th marks Let Them Stay Week 2014, in which activists across Canada will be attempting to uh, lobby the Canadian government to allow resistors to U.S. US wars in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, to be allowed to stay in Canada rather than participate in what they have come to see as uh, illegal and immoral wars. Uh, I am joined on the line right now by a um, 
one of the organizers with the War Resisters Support Campaign. Her name is Michelle Robideau, and uh, she joins us from her home in Toronto. So thank you very much for joining us, uh, Michelle. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. You're organizing this week. It's, it's the 10th anniversary of the arrival in Canada of uh, one of the uh, most prominent uh, war resistors, uh, Jeremy Hinsman, correct? That's correct. He arrived in January of uh, 2004 and has been living in Toronto ever since then. Okay. Now, um, at, at what point, like, how, how did your, your group get organized? Uh, he, he came to Canada and then just supporters like yourself just started to come on the scene or how did you what was the launching of uh, WRSC well the roots of uh, of the campaign to support US war resistors who were refusing to to fight in Iraq uh, really came out of the mass anti-war movement that developed uh, in in the lead up to the war um, in late 2002 and, and 2003 and uh, I was part of that movement, and of course, as, uh, as most people are aware, Canada um, ultimately decided, under the pressure of that mass movement, not to participate in the Iraq War. And um, that was really a victory for this movement that put so many thousands of people on the street uh, right across the country, and of course, around the world. Um, it was, I think, February 15, 2003, that millions and millions of people all over the world protested uh, the, um, the impending invasion of Iraq. Um, with that uh, that success, I guess you could say, of uh, the movement in in Canada, um, there was a sense of uh, of you know of achievement and accomplishment, but there was also a really uh, a, a sense of uh, defeat in the sense that the Iraq invasion went ahead with um, the U.S. and its allies uh, in Britain and other countries um, invading Iraq on March 20th of 2003. So in the following months, um, we organized a, a number of different uh, mobilizations. We went to Washington for anti-war protests there. We had busloads of people. And it was when we were in Washington that we encountered people who were involved in Military Families Speak Out, which was an organization trying to give expression to anti-war sentiment amongst uh, U.S. military families, the spouses of soldiers and uh, the, um, the, the, the parents and, and children and so on. And uh, they came to Canada in January of 2004 to, um, to do a talk for the Toronto Coalition to Stop the War. And while they were here, um, they they had a they had cut out a small clipping about Jeremy Hinsman having arrived in Canada. It was so small that uh, most of us hadn't seen it. Um, and uh, they were able to put us in touch with Jeremy through the Quakers. And so that's when the anti-war activists who were trying to find a way to to help with the anti-war uh, effort, even though Canada had had not uh, supplied troops, we wanted to do much more. And that's when um, we started meeting with Jeremy and his lawyer at the time, Jeffrey House, and we came to the conclusion that we needed a movement um, to to support Jeremy and and others like him who may who may be coming. Now, uh, the the campaign has uh, had uh, both uh, legal and political uh, uh, wings, you might say. Um, is it possible you could just sort of give us a, a sketch of the, the last 10 years of activism, some of the, the victories and some of the defeats? Sure, yeah. As you say, I mean, when, when we first uh, looked at 
creating uh, a specific organization to help war resistors uh, be allowed to stay in Canada, we recognized there were two tracks that it had to uh, unfold on. One is the legal track, and uh, the other is the political track. And uh, on the legal front, I mean, it was a real learning process for us to to understand what changes had transpired since the Vietnam War when many tens of thousands of Americans were able to uh, to stay in Canada, um, both deserters and draft resistors, and uh, the, the, the situation then and the situation today, which is very different. Um, at that time, in the 60s and 70s, it was possible to apply for landed immigrant status right at the border, and uh, there were a variety of, of requirements, but if you met those requirements, you, you could stay in Canada as a landed immigrant. Uh, today, the situation uh, is, is very different. And so we, um, we spent a lot of time uh, over the years, uh, you know, developing our understanding of the, the legal landscape and how we could um, test the, um, the, the limits that existed to finding a solution for war resistors. Um, and there, were no, there have been a number of important victories on the legal front. Um, most recently, there was a decision in um, the case of Jules Tendungan um, last January where the federal court found that um, the U.S. court-martial system does not meet uh, basic norms of fairness uh, uh, in, in that compared to Canadian law and international law, and basically... Uh, supporting the argument that U.S. soldiers who have spoken out against the war while they've been here in Canada have faced um, uh, differential punishment, harsher punishment, when they've been returned to the U.S. or when they've voluntarily returned to the U.S. So so those have been really important developments in terms of um, uh, just uh, the, the argument that soldiers have a right to conscience and that the instruments that exist uh, in the U.S. that are supposed to provide some kind of... Uh, Fair, um, fair shake for them to argue their case. Just uh, they don't match the standards that uh, that we would expect for for um, in Canadian law. So that's been a really important development. Um, but on the political front, which is really where we think this has to be won, we of course we we are involved in the legal cases and we uh, have done everything we can to support war resistors who have pursued legal strategies of, of different sorts. Um, we we feel that this is ultimately. Uh, an issue of, of politics, uh, just as it was during the Vietnam War, um, that it's about um, uh, how our uh, elected representatives uh, respond to the will of, uh, of Canadians and to the fact that um, uh, Canada didn't participate in the Iraq War and that we should be welcoming um, those who, who made the same decision for the same reasons. Um, we had two motions passed in Parliament uh, by a majority of MPs saying that Canada should allow war resistors to stay and, and stop deportation proceedings against them. And we came very, very close to having a, a, a private member's bill adopted in the Parliament, um, at least at second reading. That was um, unfortunately defeated by seven votes. Um, but that would have changed the Immigration Refugee Protection Act if it had uh, gone forward to... Uh, to, uh, through through that process, and uh, we thought that was quite an incredible accomplishment, considering that uh, we're talking about just you know really a few dozen people who um, who are mounting this challenge, a few dozen war resistors who uh, who got together to to push for this. So those are some of the successes that we've had, but um, really um, the the problem remains with a conservative majority government 
our ability to to see what we think is majority opinion in the Canadian population, which supports the decision that the war resistors have made, um, translating that into um, legal ch- or, or rather political change uh, through Parliament has been uh, extremely frustrating and difficult, and we have uh, a very um, a very um, what should I say entrenched adversary in uh, the Conservative Party that supported the Iraq War that is uh, bound and determined to punish those who. Um, who uh, have stepped away from that war. Yes, I, I remember back in September of 2012 when it was announced that Kim Rivera, as a, a female deserter and mother, uh, about who was pregnant, was uh, deported, and uh, the, the announcement came through in the House of Commons, and uh, the uh, there was that all that language about being a bogus refugee claimant, and uh, the Conservative Caucus, or several members of the Conservative Caucus, seemed to applaud so uh, it does seem as if the the campaign has its uh, uh, its challenges in terms of uh, effecting a political solution where you've got a, a conservative majority. Um, I, I guess that brings us to the, uh, the the actual campaign that's happening this week. And uh, could you maybe just maybe let our, our listeners know uh, some of the things that they can or, or should be doing in order to advance some sort of. Uh, um, a favorable resolution of the situation. Well, uh, for sure, I'd, I'd really appreciate the chance to talk about that because we feel, uh, even though we have a conservative majority government at the moment, um, that uh, we are now into a period of uh, a countdown to the next federal election. Um, there was a period of time after the um, the defeat of Bill C-440, which was the private members bill I mentioned, that would have given uh, war resistors uh, a means of staying in Canada. Um, there was a sense that there wasn't much we could do on the political front to um, to try and advance this cause, that uh, at best what we had to do was just outlast the Harper government. Um, but now we, we've sort of been looking at... Um, you know, the combination of the legal developments that I mentioned, which are more and more recognizing um, the the unfair situation that U.S. war resistors face if, they're, if they are forced back to the U.S., um, and combined with the, the sense of, I think, uh, a renewed, um, a renewed combativity in, 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 in opposing Harper and his policies, um, we've, we feel it's important to, to go out there and remind politicians that Canadians still support U.S. war resistors, that we haven't um, uh, forgotten about their situation, and that uh, we're determined to find a provision, to make sure a provision is enacted that would allow them to stay. And so we have a lot of lobbying work uh, cut out for us because um, really we haven't, as a campaign across the country, engaged in that kind of work since, I'd say, 2010. It's been a number of years, so it's been since before the last federal election. Um, many of the the new MPs really don't know a lot of the details about the situation of war resistors, about why they uh, they um, refused to fight in Iraq, what they saw in Iraq, what happened there. Um, for a lot of these MPs, it must be quite an abstract uh, question. So we want to go out there and uh, talk to them, and that's where we really need uh, the help of uh, of listeners uh, of your um, of your program and and people across the country um, to go out and talk to their MPs about why they support war resistors and and who the war resistors are 
And so on our website at resistors.ca, we have a little um, plan for the week of Let Them Stay Week. Um, and everything from, you know, tweeting and posting stuff on Facebook about your support for War Resistors to writing letters to the editor uh, in your local paper or um, sending an email to the Minister of Immigration, Chris Alexander, and writing, of course, to your own MP um, to asking for a meeting with your MP. So there are all a whole range of things that we're asking people to, to do. Uh, if you're part of a group or a, 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 a faith group, a, a trade union, a student group, a community organization, you can get people together to write letters um, and send them off. If you are an individual, you can just hop online and, and send an email right now to Chris Alexander. So those are some of the things that we're asking people to do. Okay, and uh, again, the uh, the website is uh, resistors.ca. I assume you have a Facebook page as well. Yes, uh, and uh, if you go on and look for War Resistor Support Campaign on Facebook, you'll find us there, and uh, you'll also find an update about Kimberly Rivera, who was released from jail. Um, as you mentioned, Kim was deported September 20th last year and uh, uh, was court-martialed. And, uh, so deported in 2012. Uh, 2012, yeah. sorry. And um, we're in the new year. Yes. <laughs> it's already upon us. Um, so she spent 10 months, uh, almost 10 months in jail um, and uh, was recently released in December of 2013. And uh, she is now uh, back with her family and, uh, and trying to really rebuild her life after, uh, after this really terrible experience. Uh, which really devastated her family. Um, and this is all because of our government and Stephen Harper and, and Jason Kenney and, um, and uh, the, uh, the government that they're part of. So um, we, we think that it's important anybody who supported Kim and who was horrified by what happened to her, um, it, here's a chance to do something to, uh, to make sure that uh, what happened to Kim doesn't happen again to anyone else and that it wasn't in vain and that we we utilize um, our sense of outrage to to mobilize again to uh, to to get a provision made for war resistors to stay in Canada okay well with Michelle I, I really appreciate your uh, uh, your your sharing that information with us and uh, I guess all the best with the uh, let them stay week thank you very much We've been speaking with uh, Michelle Robodeau, who is the, uh, one of the organizers with the War Resisters Support Campaign. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. <laughs>